Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Amy Alsnauer has been busy. This past April, she released The Boy Who Dreamed of Infinity, a picture book biography of the Indian mathematics genius Ramanujan. And this week, she's releasing another picture book biography of Flannery O'Connor, a writer you may have heard mentioned before on this podcast. That one is called The Strange Birds of Flannery O'Connor. Amy Alsnauer teaches calculus and number theory classes at Northwestern University. She's writer-in-residence at St. Gregory the Great, a Catholic church in Chicago. Oh, and she's curating an exhibit of Flannery O'Connor's Juvenilia as part of a larger exhibit of O'Connor's life at Emory University in Atlanta. We had a lot to talk about. Hey, Amy Alsnauer, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here. I am really excited about uh, about your picture book that is coming. Actually, when the, the week this episode airs will be the release week of the Strange Birds of Flannery O'Connor. Did, did I get that title right? Yes, you did. That's exactly right. It, well, long ago, it used to be called Flannery and the Peacock, but um, at some point, I hit upon the Strange Birds of Flannery O'Connor, which I like much more. Yeah, I, I do too. How did you end up? Like, why? Why are you writing about birds? Flannery O'Connor's birds. So, so it started from years and years ago. I set myself the task. I think it was actually preparing for a panel that I was going to be on. And I read every last word, published word of Flannery O'Connor's in a short period of time, which is quite an intense experience. But of course, I came across um, her beautiful essay, um, King of the Birds, where she details this childhood quest that she was on. And so even though she doesn't quite spell it out in that in that essay, to me, um, the, the childhood quest she was on to find the strangest, most stunning, uh, beautiful bird uh, that she could find was really a parallel quest to her her writer, writerly quest. And both of them began in childhood, um, which I didn't know at the time, but she was also um, already on that path to becoming a writer when she was a kid. So as I, well, then when I visited the archives and I realized much more deeply how much a presence birds were in her life as a child and her imaginative life and in her physical life, um, I thought, now this is exactly that thing that you need to look for, that, 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 that object in the concrete, as Flannery would say, that would point to something in, in the invisible realm, right? So it's the, the quest to find the birds really was the thing that would allow me to point to her quest to become a writer. And yeah, so. What did you find in the archives that was more birdish than, than say, <laughs> the habit of being? Well, well, I wouldn't say it was more birdish. I think the thing for me was that when the thing that's so stunning when you go to the archives and so delightful is that you see online that there's these folders of juvenilia and you have no idea what you're going to find, you know, if it's just uh-huh. going to be a scattered um, sketch or, you know, just a, a little record that the a parent wrote, but instead you find folder after folder stuffed with her creations from childhood. And there's sketches, there's little stories, there's endless cards that she wrote to people. And birds factor into this from her earliest age. So there's a little sketch. It's actually the only only unique sketch that's held at GCSU. And my guess is that it was tucked into 
a book because they mm-hmm. hold her um, writings, not everything else. But anyway, there's this little sketch she drew of a stick figure child wearing a hat and the child is flying and there's oh, a wow. turkey that's on the ground. And to me, this was just, and, and it was a very special drawing in their family because her father carried this particular drawing in his wallet everywhere oh. he went. And so to me, that was sort of this relic from her earliest imagination where she saw herself as a bird. And Mm -hmm. she even gets to that in her essay, King of the Birds, where in the end she has this dream where she is the peacock. Yeah. And so I think there was a merging in her own imagination from a very young age of herself with birds. And so I just found all of that so compelling and it gave me this sort of three-way symbolism between the birds, the stories, and her. Yeah. Um, okay. Can you can you work out some of that symbolism for me here? The birds and <laughs> birds in the writing. Well, okay. So I mean, she saw herself as a misfit child, right? As a as a strange child, and um, and of course, then her writing is all about these sorts of figures. And then she was attracted to this very quality in birds. It wasn't just any old bird she was interested in. She was interested in strange birds, and I think. <laughs> ends that essay by saying um, that she had this this event that marked her for life, which was the Pathé News people coming down and taking this little film of her with her backwards walking birds. Have you seen that film? Yeah. I, know, yeah. I, need, a link, I need a link to that in, in the uh, uh, notes to this. Yeah, so, no, it's, it's so charming. Um, but the bird actually didn't perform for her, so they ended up doing this camera trick with rolling everything. I know, I hate it. <laughs> I know it was silly, but, but, um, but, but you anyway. know, I, I just looked at that movie right before, you know, we got on this yeah. uh, call and I had forgotten that you actually see little Flannery O'Connor in the, or little Mary. Yeah. Little Mary. Yeah. It's um, lovely. But I think one of the things she was trying to say when she said that this marked her for life, it wasn't just the strangeness of the birds, but what really amazed her was that it, it got the attention of other people. Yeah. And yeah. so she thought, there's something in strangeness that <laughs> is important, right? That is important because it makes mm-hmm. people sit up and look. It makes people react. And mm-hmm. I think if you notice in the essay by the end of it, what she's, she, of course, she loves to stare at the birds herself, right? So she's having her own private reaction, but she loves to watch other people react to them. Yeah. And I think for her, that was as much a part of it as anything else. And so she was, a, you know, a student of, of the world around her, but in particular, the, the world of people and how they, they interacted with the world around them. So to, mm-hmm. to see people have the various act, reactions of anger or awe or, you know, dismissal, I mean, all of that was fascinating to her. So I think, um, I think in birds, you can see what, what's really interesting to me when I'm writing about a child, because I, this is like a firm belief I have, is that the child is already the person they're going to eventually become. So you're not seeking out some stranger when you're looking in the archives. You're seeking out that person that you maybe already are acquainted with in their writing. But you're saying, you're asking, like, how did their early imagination form and lead them to this? And so when I see her reacting to birds and loving birds and writing birds and and writing about people's reactions to birds, I am seeing her event, her imagination taking shape, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I love, you know, all, any little clue about, about her childhood is so fascinating. You know, in, in the letters and in the 
biographies and, and uh, but you're right. I mean, it feels like it's the it's the same person, just just a little a little version of it. Exactly. And the photographs of her, I mean, you see her personality in full bloom when she is when she is little. You know, you can yeah. see it in her face. You can see her wry look, her sort of level gaze, her <laughs> brilliant. All of it. I mean, it's there. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. T uh, can you tell a story or two um, about her childhood? That, that Well, so the thing I'm obsessed with right now, and I, it actually took me two trips to the archives to really flesh out how marvelous this is, but there's all of these little books that she made. Um, and she has this statement that it's in one of her journals when she was 14. She said, I realized that I, I need to bring literature into being. And for her, that became um, both a literal task and, you know, and the task of writing, but also the task of creating the books. Mm -hmm. So she was a book creator. She tied her little books together with ribbon. She, bound, she actually hand bound them with wire. Oh, so wow. she coiled copper wire. I don't even know how she would have done this because to me, it's so like, have you ever had like a spiral bound thing come unbound and then tried to feed it back in? Yeah. It's impossible. <laughs> She actually created spiral bound books, but the thing that she created when she was 15, it was the year her father died, was this book called Mistaken Identity, which is about her own goose named Herman. They all named it Herman. And then Herman laid seven eggs and <laughs> that Herman was Henrietta. So this story is such a beautiful, funny story in rhyme. And it also is such a beautiful metaphor, this idea of mistaken identity and that what is true is hidden and then emerges. Uh, um, and the egg becomes this beautiful literal symbol, that thing in the concrete that points to the, the thing in the distance. So I'm just obsessed with this book. But what I found when I went back to the archives I actually found these letters that she wrote to publishers to try to get them published. As a teenager? As a teenager at 15. So really? she, the first one, she sent it to Macmillan and they turned it down. And this obviously annoyed her. So the original inscription was to all nice geese, the original dedication. And then she changes it to, um, this is for highly intelligent adults and precocious children, which is actually <laughs> in my book as well, because I just love it. Um, but yeah, so she changes that and then she writes this letter to Viking and she says, this is not children's literature. And then her PS is, I've seen worse published. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. So anyway, but that's, I mean, that's her at 15, right? And it's so it's, funny. It's sort of this outgrowth of all of these stories she wrote about birds, like even back in grammar school, the sister Consolata, who was her, her teacher, told her that she was sick and tired of all these stories of ducks and geese. She didn't want to yeah. see every one of them. Yeah. <laughs> so. and at home act, she made clothes for, when yeah. she was supposed to make clothes, she made clothes for, for ducks and... and uh, Berman, who was the star of Mistaken Identity, was a model in a drawing class. She brought him in so everybody could <laughs> draw him. <laughs> so yeah, she always had, she always had her birds. <laughs> so. Oh, that's great. Um, did you, um, so what are you doing? You're, Mistaken identity. Um, you are somehow editing that. Um, I'm editing that. We don't have a publisher yet, so I'm just hoping that we'll have a publisher for it. Um, the estate, Flannery O'Connor Estate, is very much in favor of bringing this to publication. So we uh -huh. just find a publisher. But um, I think it will. I think it will be published. Um, so I'm editing that, which means I'm writing an introduction or an afterword, whatever the case may be. Uh -huh. As case may be. Yeah. 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 
But we already have a blessing from Flannery O'Connor herself because she obviously wanted it published. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you, um, okay, so you are um, curating an exhibit at Emory. Yes. Tell me about that. So um, it's, it's really grown into a quite a big thing. Um, so years, so several years ago now, um, when I was working on this book, I just thought, you know, p- other people want, need to see this. Like you, anytime I've mentioned it to somebody, they're just fascinated by the idea yeah. of Flannery O'Connor as a child and all these creations. And there's so much, I mean, I really will have to be, I will have to choose what to put out there, but I thought people need to see this. People will need to see this. And so my original idea was to call it imagining Flannery. And that's sort of a double meaning Flannery as an imagining being, but then also other people imagining Flannery. So it was going to be a dual exhibit of the art of Ping Zhu, who's the illustrator for my book, mm-hmm. um, imagining Flannery, and then Flannery herself as an imagining being. But now Emery has decided that they want to do sort of an all-out show-stopping Flannery O'Connor exhibit. And so they're they're making it into a much bigger thing. So I sort of have the juvenilia piece of it. And really? then they're also probably pairing it with the art of Benny Andrews, who was an African-American artist who illustrated this, um, what they call elephantine edition, this giant edition of everything that rises must converge. It's a stunning book. Um, It's this big red book. I actually had to stand on a ladder to photograph it for my own notes. But it's a beautiful um, thing. And he wrote a a beautiful essay about Flannery O'Connor and race and his own relationship to it and why he decided as a American a man to illustrate her work. So currently that is part of the exhibit. So it's going to be fascinating. It really is. I can't wait till it happens. That's amazing. And, and so you said that there's, I've never even heard of this edition. Is it? Yeah, it's not well known because I mean, nobody can come out. <laughs> it's like this, I'm sure it's like hundreds of dollars to buy this yeah. book. It's gigantic. So. Yeah. Okay. Um, so when is this exhibit going to open? Well, you know, this all was planned before the current crisis. Um, Mm -hmm. It was planned for 2021, but I wouldn't be surprised if that got bumped a little forward just because everything's moving a little bit more slowly. And Mm -hmm. I think we have all of this lead time. We wouldn't want to schedule it until people are actually able to attend. Sure. So I think it will kind of be a work in progress and we'll just see, see how things turn out you know so okay so in this juvenilia um uh exhibit that you're curating what what kind of things are going to end up in there i mean besides i mean besides written and drawn i mean i'm fascinated with that too but but what else what other kind of things you got in there no i think that i mean besides written and drawn that's really pretty much it i mean there's okay so much stuff. There's so much. Um, I mean, I guess there are so many physical objects, but that's really more at Savannah, right? The, there's the objects from her childhood. And I would, now that you mentioned that, I would love to include some of her little statues of birds because she had hundreds, she had a collection. I don't know if you know about oh, this, but she had a collection of little glass and ceramic birds, like hundreds of them, even as it really? carried time she was a teenager. So it was a childhood collection that she developed. But that really, um, since it's an Emory-based exhibit, we're really going out of the Emory archives. Um, I think they're willing to collaborate a bit with um, Georgia, and they're very open to that. But um, but anyway, so I, right now, what I'm really focused on, I sort of have it into categories, are her, her drawings, her little books, which mm-hmm. are extensive. <laughs> There's so many funny ones. There's one called Why I, ha- Why I Chose Heart Trouble. <laughs> what? How to destroy kittens. 
<laughs> so there's so many. Um, the great Flannery o or the great M.F. O'Connor, I think, is one of them. <laughs> or the priceless works of M.F. O'Connor. That's what it's oh, called. Oh, that is so funny. Yes. So she. So there's so many little books that I definitely want people to see. There's so many photographs, and I think that's a really important part of it. Um, so those are the main, and then the letters. I think she wrote, she designed cards. She wrote cards. She made these little folded creations. She did so many uh, for Mother's Day, for Father's Day, for relatives, and they're always very wry and amusing. So, <laughs> yeah. oh. um, I, I love, uh, I've never seen it, but I've, I've heard about the little cartoon she wrote, Drew, yeah. um, that says, uh, the mother says, hold up your head straight, and the little girl says, I heard somebody who died from holding his head up straight and you're just as bad Ed or something like that. That, that image was, was really important for my book. And I actually had, got permission from the um, estate to have that in the back of my book. So you'll see that one. Oh, that I'm so glad because I've never seen it. And, and oh. that, that one's at Emory? That's at Emory. Yep. Yep. Yeah. yep. And there's similar ones. That's not the only one. She has another one. It's, it's, it's this little family parade. And I think she did that when she was nine. There's another one she does several years later and it's the same parade, but it's funny because it's, it's a lot more glum. <laughs> 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 that one's so funny. And the, the sun is smiling. And in the later one, the sun has lost its smile. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Okay. So you are, um, you've been very busy cause you, you just a few weeks ago published another book about yeah. the Indian Mathematician Ramanujan. Yep, exactly. Good pronunciation too. Well, I, I watched a little video in which you okay. talked about Ramanujan. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so some people say Ramanujan. That's the British pronunciation, but oh, it's really? actually possible for us to say it correctly because it's four unstressed syllables, the way that Tamil people say it. And I think huh. it's just almost impossible for an English speaker to say four unstressed syllables in a row properly. So I don't even want to. No, I know exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, yes. So I that book just came out. So yes, I've been very busy surrounding that. Yeah. So tell me about Ramanujan. So when I was a little girl, my father, I was on a trip to England with my father and this incredible thing happened. He was, we were there to visit another mathematician and she just told him about these boxes of papers that were kept at Cambridge Library. And she thought he might be interested because he'd written his dissertation. Um, he, he's a number theorist, so she thought, you know, it'd be interesting to look through these boxes of number theory papers. So he went there, but he'd actually written his dissertation on Ramanujan, on something called the Mach theta functions, and nobody in the world was thinking about them at the time. So mm -hmm. he was really the only mathematician who, who was aware of this. Ramanujan had died, you know, over 50 years before, and his, Ramanujan, his mathematics had kind of faded away mm -hmm. in the mathematics world. So anyway, he went and opened this box, and he saw before him this, these papers that were really Ramanujan's, were in Ramanujan's handwriting. So it was what he'd been doing as he lay dying. And we knew that it existed because he'd written one letter to his collaborator in England, G.H. Hardy, where he talked about the Mach theta functions. And, um, and I love it that my father believes, and a lot of people believe, that he named the Mach theta functions after the Mach turtle in Lewis Carroll. <laughs> uh -huh. Lewis Carroll fan, I just love that. But anyway. Um, Lewis Carroll was also a mathematician, right? Yes, he was, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so he realized what, that he was looking at this, this lost notebook and, um, 
And it was an incredible discovery. It was pr probably some of the most brilliant mathematics Ramanujan had ever done. And so that just shaped my early imagination. And um, of course- when you, Wait a minute. So when you say that shaped your, just that story, did, did uh, mathematics shape your early imagination? What, no, what do you no, actually, I really didn't like mathematics when I was little because of how it was taught in school, I think. So there were really two tracks in my mind. There was the mathematics at home, which to me was amazing. And- beautiful because I mean, I still remember my father like bounding up the stairs and dancing my mother around the kitchen because he discovered something. <laughs> it always gave me this sense and we weren't a religious family, but I think it gave me the earliest sense of there being a presence beyond the self, you know, because he, yeah. he was in contact with something and he very much believed and there's sort of a split in the world of uh, mathematics or the philosophy of mathematics that mathematics is invented versus discovered and my very my father was very much in the discovered camp yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think and I think that finding of the notebook was just a beautiful you know physical manifestation of that where he's discovering this yeah. mathematics um, and so as I grew up I really did eventually fall in love with mathematics um, mm. but but I think more even the writer's take on mathematics so yeah. What do you mean, the writer's take on mathematics? What do you mean when you well, say that? Well, I switched to being a math major in college. I wanted to study philosophy, film, and writing. And <laughs> I took a class by a chemist that was on cultural and intellectual perspectives on science. And I, I fell in love with science through that, but I think it was kind of, I didn't understand what that was. So I then tried to become a chemist, and I tried to become a mathematician. And I realized at some point that I wasn't in love enough with the subject itself, but I loved communicating about it. Like I loved mm -hmm. writing about it, talking to other people about it. So I still love teaching mathematics. Uh -huh. I am not a mathematician in the sense that somebody once told me you should major in what you gossip about. And I don't in my free time gossip about mathematics, but I do gossip about, I do gossip to some extent, but it's more a, communica a communicative thing. It's about articulating mathematics, you know, to other people. Yeah. yeah. No, I love that idea of, uh, mathematics is something you discover. Yeah. You know, it's out there that exists whether you know it or not. And the mathematician's job is to go find it. Right. And then voice to it. Right. 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 I, I was reading a, um, a Wendell Berry story. Um, Wendell Berry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, earlier this week. And, and, and there was um, somebody, I guess it was Danny, um, whatever Danny's Latin, Danny Branch. Um, yeah. Came to the woods and he was happy. And he says he realized that this was, that this happiness existed outside of him and it didn't exist because he felt it. It was there and he came to it. And that sounds like what you're talking about with math mathematics. And it also feels to me like what writing feels like. That is really beautiful. Yeah. I'm reading Jaber Crow right now. I'm a huge Wendell, Wendell Berry fan. Um, Have you read Jaber Crow before? I hadn't. Really? No, I hadn't. Yes. Oh, I'm jealous of, that you're getting to read it for the first time. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. I was, I had a huge Wendell Berry phase when I was in high school. And then I read, and then since then I've read a lot of his essays and reread um, A Place on Earth several times, but I hadn't read, I hadn't unbelievably read Javer Crow. So yeah. but I was thinking. Hannah Coulter? I have read Hannah Coulter. Yeah. What a great book. What a great book. Um, no, I was thinking when you were talking earlier about writing and math, uh, and there's another mathematician I really love, Maria Mirzakhani, who was the only woman to ever win the Fields Medal, and um, she wanted to be a writer when she was little and then ended up becoming a mathematician. So she and I kind of went in opposite uh -huh. direction. 
one of the things she describes mathematics in a way that's very writerly. She says that when she's doing mathematics, she's assembling a cast of characters and trying to get them to talk to each other. Really? And I love that image. And it's really affected how I think about my own writing that you, and I, when I think about a cast of characters, I don't think necessarily just about people, but about all the sort of objects or creatures that yeah. bring into communion in a story. And, um, and I think about that with Flannery O'Connor and strangeness as well, because I think mm -hmm. when you bring these, this odd cast of characters together, you know, it's, you're creating sort of this unique moment that never could have happened any at any other time. So yeah, so yeah a lot of metaphors that can span the two fields. Yeah. That's, I mean, so, so many stories, I mean, I'm tempted to say all of them, but that I'm sure it could be disproven, but, but the, you know, it's a matter of, of putting people in a room who, who don't belong in the same place and yeah. then see what happens. You know? Have you ever read um, Danny champion of the world by Roald Dahl? Yeah. Oh, no. you, have, you have to read it. If you have you read, do you like Roald Dahl? Uh, I have mixed feelings. You have yeah. mixed feelings. Okay. Well, even if you have mixed feelings about Roald Dahl, this one, I think you will be, it's my favorite Roald Dahl by far. Really? It's, a, it's a father and son story. Uh-huh. It is so, I mean, there's a darkness to Roald Dahl that maybe isn't, um, in most of his books, maybe isn't quite redeemed, but I think mm -hmm. this story is so beautiful and it's a story uh -huh. about this father and son the, the father has this <laughs> illegal habit of poaching pheasants from this private game land and i always remembered i actually listened to this because it's narrated beautifully so if i know you like listening to books so yeah. I, I recommend this as a book on tape um but there's this moment at the end where Danny, Danny's the boy and his father are walking down the street and his father has this iron foot because he had broken his foot earlier and they used to put these like iron things underneath your foot and to be able so you could walk. And so he's walking down the street and he's in this state of elation because they've just they've just caught all these pheasants by putting them to sleep, by feeding them raisins that have sleeping pills inside of them. It's all <laughs> crazy, right? It's this crazy moment. He's walking down the street and he's waving his arms and he is his iron foot is clicking on the pavement and it says moonlit night. And I just thought that's why you write is to get to that scene that never could have ever happened in any other book. And it's definitely mm -hmm. the climax of the story. Um, it's this beautiful um, moment of elation. And anyway, so yeah. to me, that was, that was that moment of bringing this odd cast of characters together, the pheasants and the raisins and the strange father <laughs> and the boy and this iron foot. And there they yeah. all are dancing in the street. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, Flannery O'Connor talks about the idea of, you know that, that you're looking for an ending that that is surprising but but inevitable. I mean, she's not the only person yeah. about that, but yeah, uh, surprising but believable. I can't remember how, which which phrasing she uses, but right. But uh, yeah. Um, okay, but you you told me about how you got interested in Ramanujan, but I still want to hear a little bit about. I mean, the book the book isn't about you getting interested in Ramanujan, is it? Is it? I mean, it's about it's him as a, as a boy, his, right? His childhood again. Um, because again, I have this, I've written three, I didn't ever think I would write three picture book biographies. Um, it started with the Ramanujan one. And then I just became, I just was really in love with that process of trying to discover the adult within the child. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I think that's what led me to these other stories. But that's really what I'm trying to do. And asking myself the question, 
he was this brilliant genius as a brilliant mathematician, but what would a boy be like who ended up being that person? And with him, there wasn't a lot to go on. So I ended up going to India, walking around in his childhood home. Um, there was this huge temple on the street that he lived on. And he really, he was a very devout Hindu. And he believed that the, um, from the, from before he was born, there was this prophecy that the goddess Namagiri was going to write her thoughts on his tongue. His grandmother had this dream about him. And throughout his life, he believed that that was the source of ins inspiration. When he would sleep at night, he would often wake up with these ideas and he believed that they were divinely inspired. He was, he thought all the time about the relationship between mathematics and divinity um, and believed in God. I mean, I think a lot of people see Hinduism as a um, polytheistic religion, but for a lot of people, it is sort of both. I mean, it is at the heart of the religion. They really believe in one God, one creator. Uh -huh. Um, but then they see these infinite manifestations. So he would actually associate numbers with that, like zero was nothing, one was God, was the unity oh. of God, infinity mm -hmm. were the manifestations of God. So um, so anyway, I really wanted to get into his boyhood. And one of the things that really helped me, there's two questions that someone thought to write down in their family record. And the first is, who was the first man in the world? This is his question as a little, oh. little boy. Who was the first man in the world? And what is the distance between clouds? <laughs> Those are such beautiful questions. And I thought, now this is the same mind. So you have to go into that belief. Like this boy is going to become who he, who that adult person. So this is the same mind as a little boy. Why were the, why was those questions? Why did they write them down? And so I thought these are questions about smallness and largeness. And yeah. those are the same questions that would eventually obsess his mind with mathematics. So he was a number theorist and he was inf interested in the infinitesimally small and the infinitely big. So that was the kind of symbolic association I made, like I did with the birds and Anne O'Connor's stories. So, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, I, I uh, ran across, probably on your Twitter feed or something, um, that you have a quotation from Catherine Patterson over your over your desk. Yes. Well, have you, do you know about the Festival of Faith and Literature? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So years ago, years, years, years ago, I went to that and she was actually the keynote speaker and they put out these beautiful posters. Um, and so actually I can read it to you because I'm looking at it. She says, I want to become a spy like Joshua and Caleb. I have crossed the river and tangled with a few giants, but I want to go back and say to those who are hesitating, don't be afraid to cross over. The promised land is worth possessing and we are not alone. I want to be a spy for hope. So I, I, I love that for so many reasons. One, I feel like it's about being a writer. So mm -hmm. it's about that task and what it feels like. And actually in the rest of her talk, she, she talks a lot about wrestling with the angel. Hmm. So, um, and I thought that's such a beautiful way of thinking about writing that it's this wrestling with, um, with the angel. It, it, it it shows both the difficulty of it and the reward of it, I guess, mm -hmm. or the, the pleasure that's inherent in it. But um, she actually wrote that quotation in a longer essay um, that she wrote about whether or not she writes for children. And she said, no, I don't write for children. I write for myself. And then she said, no, that's not right. I write for my children, but I also write for all of the children. And she was thinking about the children of Israel. And mm. So this was actually, you know, this biblical quote where they were sending out scouts to the promised land and some of them came back and said, no, we can't go. And others came back and said, no, we can, we can go. It's worth possessing the promised land. Um, and so she's, she was saying that we're all children. And I think that that's, 
that actually relates to O'Connor because O'Connor talks a lot about children in her letters and why she uses children so much in her fiction. Yeah. And one of, the, one of the statements she says is that we're all children in the eyes of God. And she also relates that to the poor. We're all poor in the eyes of God. Mm-hmm. So children and the poor become literal manifestations of what we all are. And I think Flannery is always very interested. We think about her as a, some, a symbolist, right? Somebody who uses a lot of symbols, but she was extremely interested in the literal. Yeah. I don't absolutely. think symbolic, I mean, I don't think when she's using metaphors, she ever wants to say that there's something like the, 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 the literal thing isn't there. The literal thing was of utmost importance to her. So. Yeah. Because she believed that the, that the, literal world, the world around us was just shot through with meaning. And that if you just depict the world around us, you know, the way what you've seen with your eyeballs, it can't help but be right. full of and symbolism. Yeah, exactly. I think a way a lot of people conceive of a metaphor is that there's the literal part and then there's the figurative part. And this one's true and that one's just figurative, right? Mm-hmm. But for her, they're both literal. <laughs> they're both true. Yeah. So yeah. Um, there's the point in the concrete and then there's the point in the invisible, but they're both literally true so yes. yeah yeah and um uh, uh you know the, the fact that she was a, a catholic didn't didn't hurt one bit in her right. you know understanding of of metaphor and and simple yeah i've been i've been thinking so much recently about why she used children and she has this beautiful line oh yeah here it is um she has this beautiful line about children she says when a child draws he doesn't intend to distort but to set down exactly what he sees. And as his gaze is direct, he sees the lines that create motion. I just, it's such a perplexing thing to say. And then she later says in that same paragraph, she talks about as an adult now, what she's seeing as a writer and not as an adult, as a fiction writer, she's trying to see the lines of spiritual motion. So, Uh but she thinks that that gaze of the child that's so, um, that she wants to hold on to as an adult. She wants to hold on to that literal gaze. And I think she yeah. thinks special children are particularly sort of naturally given to the literal. Uh-huh. It's, it's, uh, is that from a letter? What is that from? It's from Mystery and Manners, but I forget which essay. Uh-huh. So she says, she says, she talks about the literal gaze of children in her letters as well. She talks mm-hmm. about it actually when she's writing about that child. Do you remember that there's a, a convent that has a child, a disfigured child who they mm-hmm. believe is a saint. Yeah. Who died young. Right. And they wanted her to write the biography. Um, and she says, she talks about that in that letter as well. So. Yeah. Yeah. That, the, the preface to the, uh, what's it called? The, the anyway, the, the Marianne thing that she wrote, uh, that, which is, is that's collected in mystery of manners, isn't it? It is. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, man, what a uh, remarkable piece of writing that is! Oh, gorgeous. And actually, I realize I'm I'm getting it wrong because in that that's the essay where she talks about how agony is given to children in special ways. Yeah, and that's what she also says at the end um, when Mister Head has um, has his revelation. She says that agony he's finally experiencing this agony for uh-huh. the first time, but the agony that is given in special ways to children. She says it exactly the same way, both in the letter and in the story. Um, so mm-hmm. that wasn't so much about the literal. There was some other place where she talked about the, oh, I know it was in, um, she was discussing temple of the Holy ghost. And she was saying that the child in there had a literal relationship to the meaning of communion. Yeah. 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 And she says, and so do I, <laughs> and said, so yeah. is there a 
important to her to associate herself with that child's gaze and not yeah. distance herself from it as so many adults do. So, yeah, that's great. All right, we're getting close to the end of uh, the time we have set aside. So I've got to ask you the question I always ask, who are the writers who make you want to write, Amy? So there's so many, and I, I heard, because I listened to some of your podcasts, and I heard that Kate DiCamillo is such a common um, name that comes up, and I would, of course, list her, um, yeah. but I wanted to, to, so I was trying to, to dig into my thinking a little bit, and for me, poetry is a huge impetus to write, and one of the poets I absolutely love is Edwin Muir. Um, he writes a lot about poetry. Um, so he has a beautiful poem called The Brothers that has had a profound effect on me. Even before I started writing um, children's books, I wrote an essay called The Grave Mary Girls. And it, it, it has like a line that begins it, which is in a vision I have seen my brothers playing on the green. And I, anyway, his poetry is just amazing. And then there's another poet, Randall Jarrell, uh -huh. who I love. And I don't, most people don't know this, but he wrote four children's books. And one of them is called Animal Family. Have you ever heard of that? No, I don't know this book. Uh, it is this beautiful, it was actually illustrated by Marie Sendak. Really? Yeah. And it's, um, it's a beautiful fairy tale. So I, those, I think of those two very much. And then the children of green know by Lucy Boston is that whole series is unbelievable, <laughs> unbelievably beautiful. So it's a new book or an old book. I don't, I don't it's an old book. And a lot of people, I, from what I know about you, you would, love the children of green now it is a story about a little boy that goes to live in this i forget exactly why he's there i haven't read it in a couple years but he goes to live in this big it's very english you know this big old manor but uh -huh. while he's there all these mystical things happen there's huh. these i remember saint christopher at some point is the statue of saint christopher is walking through really? garden and he sees it mm -hmm. all happen it's beautiful anyway it's done yeah, what's the last word the children of green what no the children of green no so no is spelled k-n-o-w-e oh okay yeah so yeah a lot of people don't know it but it's honestly one of the most beautiful books children children i've ever read so yeah, yeah. so i'd say those 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 three figures, but really they're kind of opening up to larger areas of, you know, poetry, a certain type of fantasy, I think. Um, yeah. And I think Kate mm -hmm. Deke Miller is very much in that category. She's not a fantasy writer so much as she yeah. is somebody who writes kind of, I would call it magical realism. I don't know if other people yeah. would, but there's this element of the fantastic that comes in. So. Yeah. Yeah. Which kind of feels like the world where we live, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> where yeah. it feels pretty normal. And then every now and then something happens, you think that was pretty fantastical and I didn't see that coming. Yeah. And I think Flannery O'Connor, her even Flannery O'Connor is in that category as well because of her, those moments of revelation. And she always spins them out in such a, fantastical way in some sense like mm -hmm. there's this thing that's happening this vision that's happening where you're seeing something beyond the normal but yeah in, yeah in a truer way maybe than you ever saw before so. yeah i mean one reason she's so important to me and this is just a happy accident this is just the fact that i grew up in middle georgia yeah and it seems middle georgia seems so normal to me and un i mean i like it you know i have a lot of fond associations but it but it also seems like the most normal place in the world and 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 then in Flannery O'Connor that world is this place where Greek myth plays out and beautiful I mean just just the idea of a of a peacock strutting around in red clay middle Georgia 
to me, that's, that's Flannery O'Connor right there, you know? I'm so glad you said that. That is such a beautiful image. And that's, I think that's what I was trying to get to when I said the strange cast of characters coming together and this thing that happens that never could have happened. And if I think about my own writing, because I don't want to stay with the picture books, I want to write middle grade novels and what I've done in the past very much is centered in what I would say is the same thing. I grew up in central Pennsylvania. I'd say it's as normal as anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, when I write, I always want to, it it becomes something else. So it, it yeah. takes on transcendent quality and and you find that even even within the most normal within the asphalt blacktop that i would draw on with chalk you know in the playground and yeah you know so i love it right well amy all's an hour sorry um that's um this this was so much fun I'm so glad we got to spend a little time together um i first heard about your book when i was at the flannery connor's childhood home and um shelly cody there just said, do you know about the book that's coming out? And I said, I did not. So I'm so glad she told me about it. I'm so glad that, that I hope a million people read this book. Thank you so much. It was just, it was a delight speaking with you. Good. Well, let's do it again some other time. Great. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio in the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to Jess Ray for letting us use her song Too Good as part of this podcast. Visit JessRayMusic.com to hear more of her beautiful songs. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.